Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 16 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, it's a ball night. Ball night. Ball night. Game five of the Spurs and the Rockets. All right, Bobby, how nervous are you? I am confident, Steve. Like all good Spurs fans, I know we can overcome this. I'll be the first to admit we stunk it up uh, in two out of the four games so far, especially the last one. On the other hand, Houston super stunk it up in two other games, so it's mm. kind of hard to conclude anything other than neither of these teams are looking all that great right now. Well, it makes for interesting television, if nothing else. It does. Bobby, think- we, we also, as we sit here, it's about 2.30 on, what is it, Tuesday, May 9th. Uh-huh. Our students are taking their counterterrorism law final examination. They are indeed, and hopefully none of them are you know, going to be listening to this immediately afterwards. But we can't talk about it anyways because we have a few students who have not yet had the chance to take it. But I think, it. I, mean, it, it, I think it would be fun in a couple of weeks when we're, when we're clear, maybe when we finish grading. Um, oh, yeah. All right, so five years from now. Um, <laughs> right? It actually might be fun to, to, to tell folks what we tested on. on Absolutely. I, I'm all for actually bringing some, some of the pedagogy into this. Cool. All right, but before we get to pedagogy or basketball, Bobby, um, there is some stuff. Stuff happening in the national security law space. Thank goodness. It keeps us in business. We've had hearings galore. We've had follow-ons from hearings. We've had little mini crises here and there. We've had simultaneous, like, trying to listen to the Fourth Circuit oral argument in the travel ban case and watch the Sally Yates hearing. I, 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 my brain wasn't which, handling Which one do you live tweet? It's a, it's a modern problem. Uh, and, and and indeed, at sometimes the, the, the questions were overlapping. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so I guess our, our basic plan, Bobby, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about yesterday's obvious, you know, big hearing with Sally Yates and Jim Clapper and the the, the persistent threat that is Michael Flynn and, and his refusal to go away. Um, there's a little bit more to say, I really wish it weren't so, about Jim Comey and emails. Uh, there's a little bit of an update we want to give on the travel ban litigation, but also, Bobby, big developments in our neck of the woods. Governor Greg Abbott signing into law SB4, a pretty big immigration measure. Just want to flag um, some of the big questions. We'll probably devote a later episode to, to more discussion of those, mm-hmm. um, and then we want to pivot, Bobby, to some discussions of of uses of force, the authorization fees of military force, and some new proposals in Congress, um, and perhaps, Bobby, also some stuff going on in Somalia and Afghanistan. Fantastic, and if and if time permits, maybe even a little bit of the National Emergencies Act. The Aipa Night. Aipa Night will be upon us. Uh, oh. And and just because, you know, we want to give people a reason to stay for the end, Bobby and I are going to betray our shocking amount of love and interest in the Indigo Girls. Is um, that really going to make anyone want to stay to the end of this podcast? I mean, you know, Indigo Girls fans. Yep. And, and, and I think there are more of them out there than you might think. It is. It, do you, have they fallen into the category of guilty pleasure? Is that where they are these days? What's guilty about it? I don't. I wonder. It's not like they're a boy band. They're the Indigo Girls. Hey, don't, don't knock boy bands. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not afraid of my love for, you know, some of the classics. I mean, listen. In Bye 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 is my all time. You know, <laughs> when I'm alone and want to cry, jam. But, but I don't like to tell anybody that. So we're going to delete this part yeah, of the podcast. This is going to call for some editing for sure. <laughs> well, or, or just you know, a real test of how many listeners we have. Anyway, um, speaking of of preposterous hits from the '90s, should we pivot to? to Sally Yates and, and yesterday's hearing in the Senate? Okay, let's do it. Now, uh, you, I think, followed this a lot more closely than I did. What did you, you were busy. At, you were busy actually answering students' questions about our exam. <laughs> uh, you did your part, too. But no, the question is, uh, what was it? Look, obviously, there's a lot of, of political ferment around this. 
What are the real substantive takeaways? What were the issues that we learned something new about? Yeah, I mean, I think to me, Bobby, the biggest thing, and this is a point that you know our mutual friend Jack Goldsmith made in, a, I thought, a really insightful post on Lawfare this morning. The, the biggest takeaway to me here about the, the Yates-Clapper-Flynn affair um, is this 18-day period, right? So, so what we learned yesterday, we already heard reports about, but Sally Yates testifying under oath before the Senate Judiciary Committee um, that she went to Don McGahn, the White House counsel, um, and basically informed him of all the reasons why the FBI was worried about Mike Flynn, all the reasons why they were nervous about his dealings with Russia, that they thought he was vulnerable to being blackmailed because they knew he had lied to a number of senior White House officials. And, and just to add, to, and yeah. more to the point, they knew that the Russians knew which is that what, he right, had lied Which to is the what the president. security threat was, right? right? And so Yates goes to McGahn and says, listen, it is not my job as the acting attorney general to make a personnel decision. It is my job to apprise you of what I see as a significant legal and policy threat, mm -hmm. right, that we face by keeping this person in this position as national security advisor. Bobby, the key to me is what happened thereafter, right? There are 18 days between when that conversation happens and when Michael Flynn has shown the door. Um, and I just think that there's not yet been a satisfactory answer from anybody for why it took 18 days. I mean, from the moment the acting attorney general goes to the White House counsel and says, your national security advisor is compromised, I'm thinking about like kicking him out of the building before I even give him a chance to pack up his stuff. Right, and, and in fact, when he does go, it's because the media reported to the public well, what, that, I mean, what that's, it was. You sound like me. No, right. No, <laughs> I mean, that's, okay. that's the speculation, now, right? Having, done, having said that, let me, let me pivot and go the other direction for you. <laughs> uh, do we know actually what the internal White House process might have been at that point? And, and does it, is it possible that one thing that was going on was tough internal debate about what, if anything, Mike Flynn could do to make this right so he didn't have to uh, leave office? Yeah, I mean, listen, it, Bobby, anything's possible, right? Um, well, not anything's possible. It's not possible that the Mets are going to win every single game for the rest of the season. But, you know. <laughs> would that it were so. Uh, would that it were so. Um, it's possible. I mean, I, I gather from Twitter that Sean Spicer has said during the White House press briefing that is going on as we speak um, that the 18-day period was a result of the White House giving Flynn, quote, due process. Um, I'm not sure what that means because there's also yeah. – it's pretty clear that during those 18 days, Flynn was still doing his job. He's still on phone calls. He's still in meetings. He's still doing briefings. You know, and it's also, Bobby, not clear to me what Flynn could have done to ameliorate the taint, right? That right. is to say, to actually solve the problem that Yates went to the White House right. about. Right. So and here we should distinguish there's a couple of different problems. There's, there's the – uh, false statement to the vice president, which then which led is not like, illegal, which, right? But which then caused the p huge political problem of the the vice president going Lying on, on national TV television or say, saying something that was not true, saying something that was not true because he'd been misled. Now that I can imagine various ways in which that could be remediated if people were willing to own up to what they did and then go public with the mea culpa. Right. Um, legally, right, the Foreign Agents Registration Act violations, plural probably could have been ameliorated by Flynn reporting and registering and doing all the paperwork that he actually ends up doing, right, right once right. he actually steps down. Although query whether he'd then be in violation of this separate statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 219, which says if you're currently a U.S. office holder, you cannot be at that moment someone who would be considered to be an agent of a foreign power. 
Right. We well, don't know. Was is it possible that all those things were in fact in play with his own counsel and with others? Now, Maybe, I, but, I, but but Bobby, the politics. I mean, leaving aside yeah. whether whether it was illegal for Flynn to continue to serve as the national security advisor, I just I don't understand the universe where any rational person, and maybe that's the problem, could say, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, this guy is my man, even though he is vulnerable to being blackmailed by one of our chief foreign competitors, I want him as my principal advisor on national security affairs. They're completely agree. If you, if you think from the inside perspective, if they thought that was the case going forward and that's how it was going to be, then it's totally irrational to keep him around. If what they were doing was trying to get time in place to figure out how to get out of this mess without throwing their key guy overboard, I have some sympathy for that if that's what was going on. But, but then there should be evidence of that, right? And there should yeah. be evidence of that that, that that the White House should disclose. Now, the other theory, Bobby, and this is ugly, right, is that the White House simply didn't believe Sally Yates, yeah. right? That, that, I mean, Sean Spicer today has said a number of things about how she had a partisan agenda um, and that she supported Hillary Clinton. By the way, there's no evidence of this. Um, someone actually went and checked. There's no record of Sally Yates donating to any political candidate. There's no record of any, you know, she's a career Justice Department per yep. uh, official. So, you know, but but that suggests yet another problem, Bobby, which is the acting attorney general goes to the White House counsel and says, here are all the things I'm worried about. And the White House counsel says, well, I don't believe you. Go away. Well, so he didn't say that, did he? No, but I'm saying if that's the other explanation, right, that, that Yates was simply discredited yeah. because she was telling them something they didn't want to hear. And no, that of itself clearly, is a problem. There's clearly a dysfunction involved there. And I think we have to view it as part of the larger problem of there being this bunker mentality that the Trump team had, I think no doubt encouraged mightily and happily by Steve Bannon, um, that they're all, everyone who smacks of the establishment, anyone who is already here, they're all out to get you. It's the same problem that has caused the Trump administration, especially early on, less so more recently, to turn on the intelligence community in, in such a sort of a remarkably aggressive way, kind of depicting it as if somehow it's all a big partisan enterprise when, in fact, the evidence doesn't seem to Well, and, that, and that. that's my concern, right, which is that at some point there has to be the ability to step back and say, wait a second. Right. This is not a partisan witch hunt. This is a serious national security problem. And that's where I think right. Jack's piece, which I would encourage everyone to read, is very astute in singling out the unique role and responsibility of the White House counsel in that moment in time, in that situation, to be that kind of traffic no cop. No question. And this is, and as Jack has emphasized many times, this is why the White House counsel needs to be somebody with real experience in these sorts of battles, these sorts of issues, which can really derail the president's right. agenda. Their job is to protect right. the and, office. And I want to be clear. I mean, listen, you know, I don't, this is not, this doesn't have to be and needn't be part of some larger Trump-Russia story. Like, I don't care what people think about the, the allegations about Russia's interference in the election. The Michael Flynn problem is a problem unto itself, um, right, that just doesn't turn in any way on anything else. And I just don't understand the scenario. I mean, we also learned, Bobby, over the weekend that President Obama, in his meeting with President Trump two days after the election, yeah, had said, don't, don't take Don't hire Trump. that guy. Right. Well, you know, and it's unlikely the president... Trump was going to take advice on the personnel Fine, matters but from many from Obama. But but Bobby, the, the administration has turned around and said it's, it's not our problem. The Obama administration hired him; they didn't vet him. Oh yeah, no, no. Look, I completely agree. I, I don't, we don't disagree okay. on the silliness of the ways in which they're trying to make it sound like this was someone else's fault. They're going to have or, or the extent of the problem. No, it's a huge problem. Completely agreed. Uh, my only point is the eighteen the the sheer fact of the eighteen day period. There are ways I can imagine where it's fairly 
fairly reasonable that it stretched out that far. But that said, I, if I had to bet, if we could know what would have happened if there had never been a public leak, I suspect he would have stayed in and the 18-day period would have gone on and on. And perhaps they would have just tried to ride this out, which is very frightening. And by the way, just just if people like historical analogies or historical circles, the Watergate tapes, right? The missing minutes were the 18 minutes. Oh, so, numbers so, theory. So we've gone eh? from hashtag 18 minutes to hashtag 18 days. Oh, is that is that in use? Um, I, I, if not, it, it should now. be. Um, right. Anyway, so listen, I, I, I say all this, Bobby, because there's been a lot of noise in the in the Twitter sphere today about the Sally Yates Ted Cruz exchange, um, mm. and you know who won that. Um, it is such a freaking distraction, right? Like fighting over the travel ban and what her job was and what it wasn't wasn't the purpose of yesterday's hearing, has nothing to do with the real story of yesterday's hearing, right? Well, to, right, to, to us, right? But but for a lot of people, this is just infotainment. I mean, that's part of the huge, I would say it's a national yeah. security issue. That's part of our problem we're experiencing as in a country. There's been a complete conflation of the entertainment sphere and, and the, the sphere of information that provides us knowledge of what's going on in our government. Now they're all being treated like a giant reality TV but show. But man, I mean, there are some things that are just not that ought to be above politics and and the proximity to the president of a senior advisor who is so obviously subject to manipulation by foreign governments with which he is admittedly in at least some degree of contact and relationship is to me such a or ought to be Bobby such a nonpartisan issue sure and it just horrifies me that 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 folks don't seem to be able to see it that way I, th- I think there are plenty of quadrants in which Everything's a partisan issue, and yeah. and anything that comes after one of, you know, our team right. is is by definition partisan. So speaking of partisan issues, right? There there's no partisan issue quite like Jim Comey and emails. Oh oh boy, this just gets better and better. Okay, so this is just a really quick. This, this may just go down as me ranting for a second, and and I hope folks will forgive me. But so it can't, you know, Comey testified last week. That would have been, I think, probably our bigger congressional hearing story if there hadn't been this hearing yesterday. And footnote, right? Sally Yates' testimony may be proof of why Devin Nunes didn't want to have his big open hearing back when. Leaving that aside, so Comey testifies last week about the famous October letter. Right and the emails, and he said a bunch of things in that hearing that got a lot of headlines about Huma Abedin, right, Hillary Clinton's very close advisor, um, having set up her email in a way that it was forwarding to Anthony Weiner, right, and that that's part of what they discovered that provoked the you know infamous late October surprise, as Senator Feinstein called it, was the presence of these emails, including some of classified information on Anthony Weiner's laptop. Bobby, it turns out, thanks to reporting from the Associated Press and other sources today, that that's not true, that what in fact happened was that one time Huma Abedin synced her BlackBerry on Anthony Weiner's laptop, and so there was an encrypted file on Weiner's laptop with a, a spate of emails from that one sync. Including some classified information that shouldn't have been on his email. Maybe. His I mean, that's not clear from the, from the AP reporting so far today. Maybe, maybe not, but it's not what Comey told Congress last week. So I think this is not anything very exciting. Obviously, it's never good to say anything that turns out to be materially inaccurate. But I, I, A, I think we agree that there's almost no chance that Jim Cummings actually was trying to mislead oh, here. Of course not. So it's clearly an error of uh, an error, not an intentional uh, misstatement. But in judgment. In judgment, no. I mean, it, it's, an, it's a factual error he made in the midst of no, but see, but this is, so this is where this is where perhaps you and I disagree, because it seems to me that in the broader context of the letter he sent to Congress, which, you know, if you buy Nate Silver's analysis, probably had a two-point 
or 1.5 point effect on the polls, which, by the way, swung the election, right? Because that's how close it was in the three big states. Um, if you buy the effect that the letter had, well, the letter was saying, oh my gosh, I've found these emails. I'm not sure what's in them yet. Big potential deal, I gotta let you know. Then Comey goes back to Congress last week and says, okay, so there actually was some stuff in the emails. They were mostly duplicates, but this is why I was concerned. And now it comes out that even what he said last week well, isn't necessarily no, what was I true. Don't, I don't see the story that way. What I, what I understand the story to be is that last week in testifying to Congress, in the course of explaining how was it that emails that were then reviewed and prompting the October letter, how was it they got on Anthony Weiner's laptop he described one pathway for them to get on there that turns out not to be the right description. There was a different pathway. It wasn't that Huma was forwarding them in large numbers, although I think that he said that she did forward some, um, but rather that the BlackBerry was backed up onto it. But either way, some emails got there, and those were the emails that were investigated in October, and his letter would have issued the same way. The fact that he misremembered or misunderstood the pathway, I don't think is material at all to what he did in October. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, listen, it's not material at all to what he did in October because he sent the letter before he knew which emails he had, right, which is a critique of the letter in the first place. Well, right, but, 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 now, but now, the October, now the more recent testimony is ir irrelevant to that story. We I, only yeah. have a story about... A, uh, did Jim did Jim Comey mislead Congress? Not purposely, certainly not. B, um, the misstatement that he made is it material? Does anything really turn on this? Does the story actually differ? I mean, I think I think if nothing else, Bobby, pathways? perception turns on it, right? Because the the hysterical reports that came out of Comey's testimony last week was that you know this was the smoking gun that Huma Abedin had forwarded thousands and yeah. thousands of emails. Well, I will agree to, with you that those you know the Breitbart crowd or whomever who was trying to make it sound like aha more more evidence of, of bad behavior by the Clinton camp, it's silly to try to tout his testimony. The Breitbart crowd way. and, you know, the White House. Look, whoever is trying to, to make it sound like it was a big deal uh, shouldn't have been trying to make it sound like it was a big deal. It was just a description of what he thought at the time was the pathway. Now there's apparently a need to correct his description of the pathway, but the pathway itself is not material here. At least that's what I think. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think the whole story is still, there's still something that just doesn't feel right here about like what, how did it come to pass that in such a that, that such a high visibility situation, right? Comey would go up before Congress and say things that four days later turn out not to be true. Uh, again, I mean, Jim Comey is the last person I agree who would ever lie to Congress. Like nobody's perfect, and there's so much information going on here. It's it's a ridiculous. Bobby, this is this is, Look, this is you just this said is more yourself, than just a detail. You just said yourself you don't think he did it on purpose. It was a human error. Yeah, I just I just I don't and understand not on a these. not on a fact that goes to anything important. I'm not. I mean, that's where I think you and I disagree, right? Because I think I think the emails in general are a story, and I think that how they're portrayed and what exactly the problem was is part of that story. But maybe we'll just have to agree we to disagree. We are going to have to agree to disagree. Let's is that, is that the first time that's happened? In no, I think, we've, I think we've disagreed enough, but we need to disagree more. Let's dig into something else. What about the travel ban? Do we disagree about that? I don't know about that. Yeah, let's, so, let's so, just, so super quickly, right? I mean, yesterday, the Fourth Circuit, en banc, minus two, so with 13 judges, um, heard the government's appeal of the Maryland District Court's nationwide preliminary injunction of the central part of the travel ban. Um, Bobby, I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to the argument. As I confessed, I sort of did, um, perhaps while answering questions from students. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was an interesting argument because although I think Jeff Wall, the acting SG who was arguing for the government, you know, did about as well as he could, he did not have a lot of friends up there. Um, and so, you know, my sort of tea leaf reading, which is always dangerous, is that the government's going to lose in the Fourth Circuit. Um, we also learned yesterday the composition of the Ninth Circuit panel that's going to hear the government's appeal of the Hawaii injunction next week, or or the case from some little island in the Pacific. 
And in that panel, how's it looking? Um, so if I'm the government, I'm 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 maybe moving to submit without oral argument. So um, they're, so they're going to go ahead and look ahead to the uh, the, the next round. That's I mean that's the question. So the panel is it's three Democratic appointees: uh, Richard Pius, Michael Hawkins, and Ronald Gould. I will say, I mean, Judge Gould is actually a fairly conservative Democratic appointee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, about as conservative as I think a Democratic appointee gets. Um, you know, Judge Hawkins is a centrist. Judge Paez is certainly to the left of Judge Hawkins. B- Bobby, it's not it's not the most liberal panel you could get in the Ninth Circuit, but it's not a good panel for the government. Yeah, yeah. so they're, they're likely to lose out there. The Fourth Circuit, you know, I'm struck by how much the reputation or the perception of the, of the complete active judges' uh, core in the Fourth Circuit, how it's changed over time. Well, listen, I mean, you know, there are 15 seats on the Fourth Circuit. President Obama nominated six judges, mm-hmm. right, in his tenure. That's a higher percentage of the court than any of the other, um, what, 12 Right, geographic circuits, uh, eleven DC, other twelve circuits, right? Uh, eleven geographic in the federal circuit, um, and and not only did he have six of the fifteen, but two of the recusals were Republican appointees. So of the thirteen judges who heard argument yesterday. Six were Obama appointees, four more were Clinton appointees. I mean, this is not your father's fourth circuit. No, exactly. The cliche has changed. And, th- and that actually leads to the fact that uh, there was a story, I guess, yesterday or the day before about the district and circuit court appointments that might be coming in the first wave from the Trump administration. And, and I'm not sure. Including quite... some law professors. Oh, yeah. Isn't that always a good sign? Uh Usually, usually a good in the, sign. In this case, I think a good sign. In this and, case, a good uh, sign. I, and, uh, I, I would not stipulate that all law professor judicial <laughs> appointments are good ones. No, but, nor would I. Nor um, would I. But Joan Larson, who's a former University of Michigan professor and current Michigan Supreme Court justice, I think is an mm-hmm. excellent nominee to the Sixth Circuit. Uh, David Strauss, former University of Minnesota yep. professor, Minnesota Supreme Court justice to the Eighth Circuit. There's kind of a pattern here, professors. Take note. Get on your state Supreme Court if you can. Well, hey, Amy Coney Barrett's going straight from Notre yeah, Dame Law that's, School to the Seventh Circuit. Yeah, that's very cool. Circuit. I, I remember uh, a little shout out to Amy. I met her, I think, at an evidence law conference the summer before I started teaching in academia, and she was in the same boat. And I was really impressed with her at the time, kind of monitored her, her stuff since then. She's terrific. That's a great pick. Kevin Newsom, yep. Alabama, yep. fantastic. I think this is yet another sign of uh, how it can go well for the Trump administration when— They listen when, to other people. When they, well, when they listen to the establishment, frankly, the conservative establishment, and it, and it, it goes better for them. I mean, listen, I, I, mean, I want to—just I, to betray my priors, you know, I, I very much like— um, Justice Larson, Justice Strauss, Amy. Yeah. These are not your picks. I, under- I think we all understand that. <laughs> These are that. definitely not my picks. Um, but I, I completely agree with the sentiment. Um, these are professionals. That these are professionals and that, you know, hey, Trump administration, note to you, right? Yeah. There are professionals out there who actually are, cons- you know, hold beliefs that are consistent with yours as opposed to mine. Um, right. Who actually would, you know, reflect well upon you and the positions to which they're being appointed. But it just it's interesting that as a domain with judicial appointments, the administration seems fine with the conservative establishment, whereas uh, on uh, foreign policy and security affairs and intelligence, it's, it's such a clash. I mean, I think, I dare say, Bobby, the irony is that it's probably because they don't care as much about the judicial appointments. Yeah. Um, and I suspect no, I think that, that's quite right. And I suspect that you and I have the opposite view, which is that it's the judicial appointments and not the executive branch appointments that have the largest long-term impact on on the shape of, you, you know. know no, I, at first blush, I was tempted to say, yeah, completely agreed. And I thought it, it kind of depends on just how bad things might get. All right, so na- so policy perspective. So right? name one person John Adams appointed to anything other than the Supreme Court of the United States. I am not a historian of the Adams administration, <laughs> but for what I know from the Hamilton Welcome, musical. folks, to the Adams administration. <laughs> 
All right. So um, now the travel ban update. We have this ongoing litigation, yep. and you mentioned you wanted to, you wanted to flag something that happened closer to home. Yeah. So on Monday, I believe, right? Uh, Greg so. Abbott, Governor of Texas, uh, signed into law SB four. Um, Bobby, SB four is a lot of different things. And I don't want to sort of you know give a short shrift to any piece of it, but it's a pretty aggressive piece of state level immigration legislation um, that, among other things, takes a pretty um, harsh view of localities trying to do their own sanctuary jurisdiction type of enforcement. No, no question, it is trying to prevent localities, counties like here in Travis, Travis County, County, or or cities from creating sanctuary regimes. I mean, it's it's interesting. The bill the, the bill doesn't say this, but it might as much, that provision might as well almost have been called the Travis County yeah, provision. The Sheriff Sally Hernandez uh, this, provision. The Dear Sally letter. But uh, but Bobby, there's some more stuff going on also about the power of Texas officials to um, ident- to identify individuals to process their paperwork to check their immigration status. Um, I, we should do a deeper dive of this when we're not so crowded. Agreed. You know, a little bit yeah. down the road. I will say, I, I you know, my, my gut reaction to this is it's, you know, if you look at this from the point of view of the Prince decision, which is sort of the, the standard con law case for um, trying to dragoon state level executive officials into enforcing or executing federal law. Um, of course, one thing's clear, the federal government cannot commandeer the state's executive arm to do it. The state can decide it wants to do it. Oh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. There's a strong federal constitutional argument on the sanctuary jurisdiction stuff. There, yeah. you know, I don't know the Texas Constitution well enough to know if there might be some protections. Yeah, I don't think so. But 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 I do think that some of the other provisions of SB four. Yeah, that's um, going to be fun to dig into the details of the, the the things that are not just the state of Texas saying, "Hey, we want to collectively." And of course, the counties and the cities are right. arms of the state. And, and even though SB four, I think probably doesn't go into effect until August first, or might even be September first. Um, the more interesting development also is that the state of Texas has filed a preemptive federal lawsuit against Travis County, um, basically seeking a declaratory judgment that all of the controversial provisions of SB4 are constitutional. I, so I just saw that. I thought it was it was fascinating. You obviously don't normally see it running that direction. No. But I got to say, I, I almost like seeing that because so often it's the other way around, right? The advocacy group weighs in the moment it's signed. They're racing to the courthouse to be the ones to lead the charge. And it's, it's just kind of, there's something entertaining about seeing the state flip it around. Entertaining, and, but I got to say, I mean, you know, I, I need to dig into the complaint a little more before I, I, I give any kind of sort of expert legal analysis of it. There's something that seems odd about a state passing a law that it knows is controversial, and then the you know the governor signs the law and then walks across the street and files a lawsuit saying, "Hey, federal judge, are we right?" Well, I'm totally speculating here, but I'm guessing that the argument might be something along the lines of we have one or more uh, city or county officials somewhere in the state saying, "I'm not obeying this rule." Sally Hernandez. No, uh, I agree, but actually, I, also, I think in fairness to, to our sheriff, I think she said she'd she'd comply. No, right, but and Mayor Adler. I mean, there's a lot to say about about what's going to happen here. But I will say, I think part of it also, Bobby, is frankly um, that if the state knows litigation is coming, perhaps by filing first, they can have more control over where the lawsuit is filed and perhaps which judges may or may not and hear again, it. And again, this is usually the act played by the, the move played by the advocacy groups that are bringing the suits. Well, or the state or states against the federal government, as with the litigation, right. you know, under the. And and lo and behold, it's strategic, it's tactically advantageous, and so everybody's doing it. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. No, indeed not. No, no. I don't like it when the Rockets make three-pointers. <laughs> Touche. Um, so so speaking of, of Rockets and things I don't like, um, right, The we, we, we're, we're, we're a little bit long into the, the show today, but we did want to spend a few minutes talking about um, what really is, Bobby, probably the bigger, longer-term development in national security law in the last couple of weeks, which is the, the real movement in Congress toward 
some kind of at least sustained discussion, if not actual progress, on a bill to authorize force more specifically against ISIS. Um, there are, I think, at last count, somewhere over six or seven now competing bills. Um, but Bobby, you and I were both struck, I think, by the bill introduced by California Congressman Adam Schiff. Right? I mean, you have a post up on Lawfare about it today. Why don't you give us a little background on this? Okay, so it's not the first time we've seen more or less this bill. It was like that, the fourth time. Yeah, the, this is well the ISIL specific one, right? We had Third it in time. the last Congress <laughs> um, in a couple of iterations. This version, I believe, is pretty close to the to the 2015. But with bill. some interesting tweaks. With some interesting tweaks, and and I like these tweaks. So let me give. I'm a glad quick, you like the tweaks. Yes, I'm here to help. Uh, let me describe a few things that are in the bill, so we're all on the same page. Um, the, the and, and by the way, folks, yeah. if you want to pull this up at home, this is House Joint Resolution 100, titled "The Consolidated Authorization for Use of Military Force Resolution of 2017." Bobby, we need a better title. Yeah, I agree. So go, go to the the uh, Library of Congress page, and if you actually just do a search in the current Congress for, for HJ Res 100, if you do that, it, I tried that. I had some trouble with it. I, huh. Then I just put in Schiff's name, Adam uh-huh. Schiff, S C H I F F. Not to be confused and, with the District Attorney on Law and Order. Indeed, exactly. I didn't notice that before. Uh-huh. Anyways, uh, this bill was the first thing to pop up under his name. So you can get to the full text that way. Or even better, Google Chesney Lawfare and find my most recent Lawfare post and you'll forget all you need to. Or go to twitter.com slash Bobby Chesney or Bobby Chesney There are so many media outlets I can help you with. (laughs) Um, So uh, he calls it the the consolidated AUMF, signifying that it would repeal the 2001 AUMF that was enacted after Mm. 9-11. It would take that content and bring it forward. It would repeal the 2002 Iraq AUMF. And in, in the place of both of those, you would have this document. What does it do? Section 2, authorization. Uh, section 2, sub A, in general, dash, the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force. Now, Steve, we'll pause there. That's the that's the same standard language you get in all AUMFs, or at least the, the more recent ones. And it's relevant here, Bobby, because that language has been understood by the Supreme Court to incorporate the relevant international humanitarian law rules. And so, right, so a, a use of force statute that refers to necessary and appropriate force and doesn't say anything yeah. expressed about international law, I think is going to be read to incorporate. I agree. I would, I would actually, one of the things I would say is they ought to tweak this bill to say it expressly so you don't have to well, draw it from implication. But you're quite correct that the, uh, the word appropriate in particular, mm-hmm. I think, has been infused with this understanding by the courts. It, this is certainly, just for those who don't follow this closely, this is the standard way throughout American history that courts and the executive branch and the military have understood authority conveyed by declarations or otherwise, which is not to say that Congress couldn't, if it really wanted to, pass a statute that called for some action or authorized some action that violated international law, that can be done as a matter of U.S. domestic law. But when Congress is silent, um, it had long been quite clear that the law of armed conflict was understood to, to control this. At least until the D.C. Circuit got his greasy paws on the matter in Albahani. But then the, the en banc kind of, uh, <laughs> removed that, that stain. So the president's authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force. Well, for what purpose and against whom? What it says is all necessary and appropriate force to protect the national security of the United States against the following groups. Now, Steve, I think that's the first interesting point. Um, with the 2001 AUMF, there's a lot of purpose language. It's, it, there's a whole bunch about how you know, a group to be identified by the president, of course, it's al-Qaeda, uh, commits the 9-11 attacks and forces being authorized uh, to prevent a recurrence in future attacks by that group. That particular qualifier, that purpose or intent language is, is just dropped in favor of just our broad, hey, protect national security. This will do no work. 
all the work instead, therefore, will get done just by the listing of which groups are within the scope of the order. Do you agree with that? I do. And I think in this context, Bobby, it makes sense insofar as this is, you know, an authorization written against an evolving backdrop as opposed to the 9-11 authorization, which was written yeah, from scratch, right? That, that, that makes sense. It made, it made a lot more sense, I think, in that context to cabin the scope um, substantively as opposed to cabining it by group, which is what the shift draft really well, tries to do. Well, I suspect you'll agree with this, that even with the more specific uh, purposeful language in the prior uh, AMF, it's not like that was doing any particular work. So, so I, 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 as a part, as distinct from the list of organizations that might be covered, maybe. Although I do think that at least the Obama administration, and perhaps also toward the end the Bush administration, was conscious of the tie to 9/11 language in how it understood, or at least in the nods it made toward how it defined associated forces, right? That that it wasn't enough that you were an international terrorist group. There was something more specific they had to show, even if you and I might quibble about just how much more they had to show. So I, I think that that is true, that it was interpreted in that general way. I think that all the work being done there is is done anyways by the idea that associated really means something. Um, that that you've got to be, right. be associated. That okay. be right. so, um, so what are the groups listed here? Explicitly naming al-Qaeda, and that's no surprise, and that's a good thing. Explicitly naming the Islamic State, also no surprise. That's, that's the main new thing being done here is to eliminate doubt that, the, that there is statutory authority, not just Article II authority, Correct. but statutory authority for the Islamic State fight. Uh, and then continuing to name or, or to explicitly name the Afghan Taliban. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on, and it does have an associated forces clause. Here's how it reads. Now, and just to be clear, this is also a clarification. The original AMF didn't actually say associated forces. This one says, any organized and armed group that is associated with one of those groups I just named, al-Qaeda, Islamic State, or the Afghan Taliban, if if such group is a co-belligerent with one of those groups in hostilities against the United States, period. period full stop. Period, full stop. So, Steve, describe how this is a cha- subtle, but I think at least theoretically important change. So, I mean, a good contrast, Bobby, would be the language of Section 1021B of the Fiscal Year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, which I think is our most comfortable and familiar statutory definition of associated forces, um, which basically defines it as those kinds of groups, if they are a co-belligerent with such entity in hostility against the United States, Bobby, or, and the or is a pretty big or, it's meaning the United States is coalition partners. Right. And in Neither there nor anywhere else do you ever get the definition of coalition partners. And so, uh, friends, what, what this signifies is that under the status quo, the, the usual way of depicting the scope of authority the government is claiming is it's al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces. And associated forces could be a group related to al-Qaeda or the Taliban, either who's fighting the United States or fighting whoever counts as our coalition partners, which might be, say, uh, you know, African Union forces in Somalia, might be uh, might be some other local host nation force, could be NATO partners, could be a lot of things. I mean, it, it could be it could be Israel. Who knows? Um, so it it potentially opens the door pretty wide. Now, I don't think in practice that's really determined a lot. I think I think until recently it actually might have been doing some work in Somalia, but in any event, uh, it's neither here nor there. The shift proposal would just leave it at: are are these affiliated or associated groups fighting us? As Which part I think of is the a, same conflict. As part engaged in a conflict that you're associated with Al Qaeda or the Islamic State 
or the Taliban and you're fighting us. That's a rule I think we can perfectly well live with. I mean, I would hope so. Um, and, and I should confess, Bobby, that, that you know, the, the changes in the shift bill from this from the last version to this one are at least to some degree probably my, my fault, um, right? So, so Jen Daskal um, and Marty Lederman and I both, all three of us, wrote a series of posts and had a series of conversations with folks on the Hill that I hope and like to think had something to do with these changes. It's, it's a positive element to me. I'd be curious what the objection would be to carving off the the disjunctive clause or coalition partners. Yeah, so I was just thinking about a hypothetical. Let me let me throw this one out there and see what you think. So going back to Somalia, mm-hmm. let's assume for the sake of argument, we have some spinoff group that is not properly described as Al Shabaab, but they're they're very much in bed with Al Shabaab, and they make a point of they they say and indeed the uh, the actions seem to back this. They're not going to directly engage in the United States, but they're going to attack the Somali government, and they're going to attack African Union peacekeepers, et cetera, but they're, just, they're not going to touch the United States directly. So they're engaging in hostilities. They're definitely associated with, and let's assume a tight way with al-Shabaab, but distinct. Uh, and they are going after what you could fairly describe as coalition partners, but they're pointedly not attacking us. I mean, I guess I guess just feel like, you know, we might have good policy reasons in that context for wanting to use force against them, but it strikes me that those reasons would be distinct enough from the justification for being in a conflict with the underlying groups that it would that it would make sense to require Congress to weigh in. Interesting. I, I, I wonder if, if it were me, I'd be very tempted to say that, look, we're, when we're operating in, depending on the facts on the ground, right. if we were operating in tight enough coalition, this is easier, easier to see with the Somali government forces where we are embedding our people with but, them. But if we're embedded, Bobby, then the chance, then I don't know how... Then how, it's an attack on us. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know how realistic the hypothetical is. Exactly. Okay, so if we're embedded and if that converts the proxy force or the partner coalition force into, basically us. into us, then I think maybe as excited as I was about spotting this particular change and your contribution to it, I think maybe it doesn't matter a whole lot. And that really the work being done here is to fend off much more extreme fact patterns. And that's what we were worried about. And that's about, valuable. Right. And, that's and, valuable. And, that's, and what we were worried about was using that language as a pretext for saying, oh, well, here's an international terrorist group that is harassing one of our coalition partners. Right. right? They're in a conflict with our coalition partner. Yeah. And we're, even though we're not really there, we're going to go ahead and fly over and drop a bomb. That's, that's yeah. the concern. So I think, I think one thing that should be considered here is whether or not the U.S. forces embedded scenario ought to clearly be brought within the scope so it's not debatable. Don't want commanders in the field not knowing where they stand legally. Yeah, I guess that's possible. I mean, I just, it seems to me that this is the closest we get to sort of doing that language and doing that language, you know, neatly yep. um, and and sort of smartly. We'll see. What else we got? We'll go lightning round here. Well, uh, so are we done uh, with the AUMF? Not quite. Uh, running through other pieces of the AMF that oh, are interesting. Yeah. So there's a sunset clause yep. here. It's a three-year sunset. Now, three years, I think, is a sensible time for a sunset clause. I, as you know, am in, on record favoring a sunset clause. Me approach. too. My only concern here is I, I wish it could be the case that it only would come up during non-election years. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd love whatever the first one So have one the first is. one be three and have the and other then one be, like be four. four. Yeah. yeah, I could live with that. I, I mean, think, I th- there, there's something to be said for Congress being completely unable to do anything intelligently or responsibly during election year. Of course, Bobby, there's something to be said for Congress being unable to do anything intelligently or responsibly. It, it could be that I'm, yes, I, I it, maybe. It, it's always an election somewhere. <laughs> it, you, the election cycle never ends, but I think the effect is minimized. If you, if you could have this materialize on the heels in you know, the first few months of, course, of the of new course. Congress. Uh, so, Bob, there's also another, I think, salutary development is in the notification provisions. So mm-hmm. one of the things that, that shifts proposals have always done is required some kind of um, 
periodic notification by the executive branch to Congress of which groups they've identified yep. as associated forces. I and think where and where those groups might be found. Right. And I think you and I both think it's a salutary development. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the very subtle changes in this draft um, is that the original proposal allowed for all of this to be done purely through classified submissions. The current draft would provide that any information, any such information submitted in classified form shall be accompanied by unclassified written findings to support such a determination. Bobby, I think especially if you're going to have a sunset that's going to require reauthorizations, requiring the executive branch to be as transparent as practicable in the circumstances about the basis for these determinations you know, I don't think it's, it goes all the way to where I'd like, but I think it's a positive step. Look, I, I am long on record arguing that the uh, list of associated forces should be made public, at least within a certain period of time. Um, the uh, the idea of having a, an unclassified written finding supporting the determination to go with the classified submission if there has to be for some period of time, a classified submission only. That's good. I imagine the unclassified written findings would be highly generic, so I'm not sure how much value that would add in practice, but it's all going in the right direction. Totally. I, I think that's all a good thing. So, so Bobby, it's a, it's a healthy bill. It's a bill that I think we both like. Um, if you were given odds, what are the chances this passes out of the current Congress? Uh, one in five. Wow. You think there's you you think there's twenty percent chance this passes out of this Congress. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's gonna happen. Oh, I think the odds are zero. Oh, even better. Okay. I thought I was I was trying to aim kinda of low and uh, <laughs> I thought you were more optimistic. That's like the, the motto of the, the dodgeball team in the movie Dodgeball. What's our motto? Aim low. <laughs> um, well okay, so in as we've talked about before, if a detainee from the Islamic State ends up again, then a will be a bill. They'll need to do something. Uh, of course. so so the question the question I posed was not whether any bill yeah. gets out of this Congress. Congress. That's whether it's the shift bill. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, I am. I, I would be very happy. Um, I would. I would sign on to this in a minute. Sure. Which may be a sign that this isn't coming out of Congress. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say, and that's exactly why, as you know, interesting a bill as this is, I think this is mostly an academic exercise, albeit an important one. Well, let me flag one other thing. Two other things about it. One, um, the bill's silent on specific questions of military detention authority, which is a Bit of a problem insofar as, as you quoted earlier, we have a National Defense Authorization Act separate from the UMF, and it has a what would then be a slightly different organizational description. So we might want some updating there, some mm-hmm. clarification. Indeed. Uh, do you think we should do the same if this bill were to become law with respect to military commissions and their organizational scope of who's the enemy in that context? Well, I mean, I, so the MCA already has a, a separate set of definitions for who can be tried that Bobby does not neatly track the AUMF or the NDAA. Um, I'm all for modifying the Military Commissions Act for lots of reasons. (laughs) Um, Certainly, I wouldn't have a problem with a clarifying amendment that was designed to um, reconcile the definitions of who's covered, right? um, I mean, you could amend the MSA just to say that, you know, persons subject to this chapter are any individual, you know, who is subject to trial under the laws of war. I mean, Right. There are easy ways to do this. Right. That will never happen. Yep. Uh, Lastly, I'll point out that one of the big sticking points from the Obama administration's draft AMF proposal, which had really been a poison pill, I think, designed as such, uh, the the outright prohibition on this amorphously defined category of offensive ground combat operations, uh, what the shift bill does, which is much smarter, is simply to gesture towards the idea that there's a set of combat ground activities that are different in kind from all the different kinds of ground operations we are currently engaging in. And what it provides for is if and when there are that sort of large-scale ground deployments for operations in which we are taking the combat lead, which is 
slightly different, it's only slightly, but slightly different from the status quo, then there needs to be not a, there's not a prohibition, there's notification to Congress. And then there's some fast check procedures if somebody wants to try to push through legislation mm-hmm. in light of that. Sure. Um, as you say, it's probably all notional, but it's a healthy exercise. I, I completely agree. And at the very least, having this on the record will provide a very useful point of counter analysis if some other bill makes further progress. No, that's right. Now, um, we, I said just a moment ago that uh, there's a sort of a fuzzy line between large-scale offensive ground operations where we are in a combat role when America is taking the combat lead versus the status quo. The status quo has often been described as our forces, as far as on the ground is concerned, we're acting, quote, by, with, and through uh, the local forces. And there's all sorts of reasons why that's become the dominant mode of our ground deployments. Uh, the war weariness from Afghanistan and Iraq from the Obama years, uh, we, we shifted away from those ground deployments out of uh, a sheer sense that our domestic politics wouldn't sustain it. Uh, separately, that it might be strategically disadvantageous to be seen to be in the lead, and, and conversely, strategically and, and operationally advantageous to have local forces in the lead. So all these factors conspire to have us only embed advisors to provide air support, to have ground uh, combat controllers calling in airstrikes, all the sorts of things that typify our substantial ground presence in Iraq and Syria today. Uh, and by the way, if you're listening and wondering where you could read more about this, I, I commend uh, the Linda Robinson piece that's in the Cypher Brief blog uh, this week. Linda Robinson has a piece describing her observations of exactly what it is U.S. forces do downrange in Iraq in particular, based on having been there about seven weeks over the past year. And she gives a really fine and pithy description of all the different forms of artillery and air support and, and, and you're calling in airstrikes, all the rest. Um, there is still a combat element to that, of course. You're, you're only so far removed from the very tippy point of the spear. Indeed, you're not really that far removed at all in those settings. This was brought home in uh, Somalia over the past week where a Navy SEAL was killed. Um, a, uh, the description that the AP wire put out, Steve, was probably the most detailed because they were they were publishing things that were asserted by the local Somali governor about what the nature of the operation was. And you get the impression that what happened here was uh, special ops, American special ops was airlifting in a U.S. advised team of Somali or maybe it was African Union forces that were going to try to conduct a raid on an Al-Shabaab target. But they took fire immediately. This is not unlike what happened in Yemen right. a few weeks before. Right. Uh, and one Navy SEAL was killed. The, and, of course, we're having you know a somewhat steady, it's still it's still episodic, but somewhat steady stream of casualties that gradually coming out of, of Iraq, Syria as well. Um, the current status quo is not that we don't do ground combat operations, is my point. Even if there's no new AUMF, even if there's no further expansion by the Trump administration, there, there are in fact ground combat operations. They go on all the time and very often they don't result in U.S. casualties, but it's still possible. So no one should think that we've somehow legally moved beyond the space right. where that's currently authorized. That's currently happening. Um, the uh, administration is, in fact, thinking about substantially increasing the number of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Right, we saw reports from that in the Washington Post over the weekend. Exactly, and there was there was talk today about how uh, I think I heard on NPR this morning there was some debate about might some of this even be in a lead combat role, which right. would be a return to an earlier policy. Again, the the reason we're talking about it, Steve, is that. There's been no legal change to either encourage this or discourage it, certainly not to forbid it. So anything that had been going on under these same legal authorities in years past certainly c- 
could go on now. It's politics and policy that have been acting as a break, not a legal change. I, I agree with that. I would just say that I, I do think that there's something to be said for if there really is a significant ramping up of operations in Afghanistan. You know, the AUMF is going to turn 16 um, right on September 18th of this year. Um, I don't think you know. I don't. I don't think I own anything that is 16 years old, Bobby. Um, Some CDs, perhaps. Ah, touche. Too, too early to mention. No, we'll come back like to that. that. There's there, there's a, an early segue to to our Indigo Girls discussion, um, right? I mean, it seems to me that that although I agree that the legal authority is there, surely it would be better after all this time, especially if Congress is interested in having a conversation about uses of force against ISIL, for Congress to also revisit the 2001 AUMF and ask, you know, a question to which they may not know the answer, which is, is this what you need, right? Or are there ways in which we can update and modernize even that statute um, to account for what's more realistic and what's more true on the ground today? I think that it's always good when doing anything that puts our forces in harm's way for there to be the freshest possible statement by the people's representatives that they support that. Yeah, you know, it'd be, it'd but be, I don't think it's legally required you know, in of any course, way. But it would be an interesting question. Um, what percentage of Congress never voted on the AUMF? Right. What, uh, what percentage of the current Congress has never actually voted to affirmatively authorize the use of force pursuant to which all of these men and women in American uniforms are putting themselves in harm's way? Yeah. Well, no doubt it's a relatively small, of course, but legally speaking. Small? I think it's probably a pretty big number. You think it, You think a lot of them are the same ones? No, I no, no I'm saying what has never voted. Like I'm saying. I yeah, think, that's I think, what I meant. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's probably actually a pretty substantial majority, certainly of the House and maybe a sort of smaller majority of the Senate. Right. That's what I meant. But you don't think there's a legal consequence to I don't, but I do think that, you know, good public policy is, I mean, there's, there's a reason why in the Constitution, the only um, legislation that has to be passed on a regular basis is military right, appropriations. Right. No, completely agree with that. Maybe what we need is some sort of meta-sunset statute that provides that when a certain percentage of the members <laughs> who voted for some standing legislation no longer in have, left the, have left office, when it when, it, when you lose the quor- the quorum of the legacy you just want voters, to say incorate again then it, the, the statute becomes uh incorate by extension <laughs> and and therefore automatically a two-year sunset kicks in that, I, now that would be interesting that's very dangerous because i mean that's true of statutes like the civil rights act it's true of statutes like the voting rights well, act. that's right that's kind of where i was going next is if you've got to be prepared to live with such an approach across mm. a range of circumstances yeah. where you may not like it and we have a force are different yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, mean, no, I mean, I honestly believe that. I mean, I, I think there is some, you know, sending American men and women, you know, to, to fight and potentially die overseas is just about the most serious thing that a member of Congress will do in their careers. And the fact that most members of this current Congress have never actually done it, even while we are in these ongoing, you know, long-term serious combat operations is, I think, you know, not necessarily what the framers had in mind. No question that we have a system where the political science account of why there's little incentive for them to vote for this uh, goes farther than the law does right. in explaining what's going on. Paging Amy Zigart. Indeed. Um, so, Bobby, we, we, we don't want to, you know, for, for the four folks who have made it this far. Oh, right. We promised them two things we've not delivered. Indeed. Uh, AIPA. AIPA! AIPA night! Love saying AIPA. My friends, you may not have noticed it, but uh, we do have a National Emergencies Act that requires uh, that... Speaking of a a meta-sunset statute. 
Boy, exactly so. You've, you've got to periodically refresh these declarations of national emergency. What's a de declaration of a national emergency? That sounds so weighty and serious. You would think that every time one of these is issued, it the would be front, front page, page news. Yeah, the veritable front page news. By front, the way, the front page of the Federal how Register. much longer do we still get to use the phrase front page news? That's probably well, not. Websites kind of, have front pages. It's still like start, it's landing kinda, pages. It's increasingly sounding a little bit of an odd fit. So, but anyways, so, so, so we call it landing page news. Landing page news, yeah. Above the fold, all these things are going to get archaic. Um, well, the uh, the the declarations of national emergency as to Yemen, Syria, and drumroll, please, Central African Republic. There you go. Uh, they were all uh, running out of time, and the administration has uh, published documents today showing that they'll all be renewed on a one-year term. Why does this matter? Because the declaration of a national emergency is the necessary predicate for a variety of statutory uh, authorities for the president to use, most notably to invoke the powers of the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. AIPA. AIPA, as we all know it and love it. This is a central sanctions regime. This is key to imposing sanctions in a number of respects. So that'll go on. No surprise there, but it's always worth actually overtly acknowledging it. Well, and, and indeed, I mean, we've, we've mentioned before, and, and I, you know, one of these days, Bobby, when we really have nothing else to talk about, we'll do a deep dive. You know, I, I think the the financial side of national security law it's huge. is huge and underappreciated and under. Um, emphasized. I would love to get into some TWIA discussion, Trading with the Enemy Ooh. Act. And, and, and OFAC, right? OFAC have a have incredibly a real, important. Um, or maybe the, the, the specially designated foreign global terrorist designation. Absolutely. And we can pivot over to narcotics while we're at it. But Ooh, specially designated foreign narcotics kingpins. Kingpins, the kingpin statute. All there, right. Um, there are actually two kingpin statutes. Well, you got to have a variety. I mean, there's there's like daredevil style. Think of how kingpin. much fun we can have with that. There's <laughs> actually there'll be a future uh, trivia. Uh, hey, kingpin segment. in the in the in the remake of, of Daredevil, right? Kingpin is um uh what's the the act uh, the actor with three names who I love. Uh, the guy who plays Kingpin. Yes. Uh, you've stumped me. Um, um, ah. It's a race. While you do that, I will <laughs> I will tap dance a bit. Hey, friends. So today's episode brought to you by Steve on his iPhone <laughs> looking up the cast of Daredevil what on Netflix. What is his Netflix. name? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Michael. No, wait. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> anyway. Um, We're losing our final four listeners. We really are. It's not going to be worth it, whatever you're going to dig up. It's really not. But I'm... I'm, pl I'm eh. No, that didn't work. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna move Change us the subject. right way into our Michael finale. Allen, no, what's his name? It's not. It's, I don't know what you're going for there. I don't know. All right, we must we must shift. The Indigo Girls, Steve. When was the last time you saw them live? Uh, Michael Clark Duncan. I was close. It was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, I was close. Michael Clark Duncan. Um, so, uh, Bobby, I uh, last weekend I took Karen, my wife, to Washington D.C. for her birthday, um, which is tomorrow. Happy birthday, Karen. Happy Ch birthday! Chances she actually heard that are, are, are zero. Karen's new thing is to listen to about 45 seconds of the podcast and declare that she's listened to this week's episode. Smart move. Um, hey, it counts in our statistics. You should start putting in Easter eggs like right now. Karen, if you hear this, be sure to tell Steve. <laughs> Karen, if you hear this, your birthday present is hidden in my nightstand. Um, oh. <laughs> there you go. Although by the time she hears this, it won't be. Um, so, Bobby, uh, Friday night we were in D.C. We actually went to see this amazing concert. It was the Indigo Girls playing with the National Symphony Orchestra. Now, hold on. I, while, while you were saying that, I went to IMDb, too. Yeah. Isn't Kingpin played by Vincent D'Onofrio? 
in the new one. Yeah. In the well, TV show. I was talking about the movie. Like the Ben oh, Affleck. With the ben Aff- oh, heavens. Yeah, Michael yeah. Hartonson, who I love. I, okay. I just don't think that movie should even count as part of it, any Daredevil discussion. Um, fair enough. But Michael Hartonson's the man. Fair enough. You're okay. right about that. So um, anyway, so we saw the Indigo Girls and the National Symphony Orchestra Pops Friday night, which was super cool to see the Indigo Girls playing with, you know, an orchestra. That's very neat. The timpani, by the way. I, I, It must be a cool job to be the timpanist. The timpanist. Do you think, though, like during the many stretches in which they don't have anything to do, they're checking their phones? Or I would love to do know. They, do they also pick up the triangle on the theory that those <laughs> will never be at the same time? I don't know, but this all leads me to, um, you know, a rare opportunity to talk about my my real greatest love of music groups, which is the Indigo Girls. I love it. Okay, so I, I do share an appreciation for, uh, for Emily and Amy. They're fabulous. Or Amy and Emily. Or Amy and Emily. Is, um, there, is there a right sequence? No, but there's this great car sticker that a friend of mine in college had that was A plus E equals IG. And, you know, if you saw that and you knew what it meant, you were a fan. So E plus A just wouldn't have the same connotation yeah. for you. And, and if you go to school in Western Massachusetts, you know, you're liable to see the Indigo Girls about seven times a year, um, as I was. That, um, yeah. So anyway, but, but it struck me that, you know, we've talked a bit about music on the show before. We've talked about other pop culture references. And I've never really gotten to talk about just how much I have long admired the Indigo Girls, not just for their music, which I've been a fan of since I was nine in summer camp. Um, the first time I heard their their self their what uh, eponymous second album second album 1989 that's right um, but also uh, Bobby they're you know I, they also do really great work outside of their music I mean they're both incredibly involved in social justice issues um, just uh, it's just a, it's it's great all around well what I like about them is that they're smart. Uh, yep. they're, they're melodically smart. Yep. The word, um, the, they're, they're lyrically smart. Yep. There's, uh, the, you know, if they were librettists instead, it'd be interesting. I, I, having said that, you know, there, there are occasionally some of the earlier songs where it feels very college, you know. To, well, yeah. And that's not a bad thing in music. <laughs> uh, but they are, their lyrics are smarter than most. Their their music is is very appealing melodically. And, and they, they sound good together. Yeah. They're very different sounding, and those voices go together great. Yep. Um, so what's your favorite album? Oh, man. So what is my – you know, I knew you were going to ask me this question, and I've been thinking about this all day, and I keep changing my mind. Um, I, I really – you know, for obvious reasons, Bobby, I lean toward their earlier work, even though there are some individual later songs. Um, you know, so I actually think All That We Let In is actually one of their great songs. But but album-wise, it really comes down to me to a choice of three. All right. Um, and it's kind of mood-specific. Okay. Um, so, you know, obviously their two most well-known albums, I think – are Rites of Passage and Swampophilia, um, right? Swampophilia has least complicated on it. Rites of yep. Passage has Galileo. Power of Two. Right, exactly. Um, I, I'm going to go on a limb and say I'm, I, my Dark Horse best album of theirs is Nomads, Indians, and Saints, uh, which is a little less known, still pretty early in their career, but has great songs like um, Southland in the Springtime, Hammer and Nail, Watershed, Welcome Me, um, and really one of my real Dark Horse favorites, uh, Keeper of My Heart, which is an, a, a powerful Amy song. Which album has Jonas and Ezekiel? Uh, Rites of Passage. Rites of Passage. Okay, so I, I thought about this too. Um, and by the way, when they left their anger in a river down by Highway 5, yeah, where Highway is that? 5 is US 5 in western Massachusetts of course and New is. England. So there you just, go. You know, did you, did you, have you ever found that anger down there? You know, the... the the, the the Connecticut River runs the whole length of Highway 5. I think it would be hard to to go find the anger. That's that's a great song. I 
I think it's actually hard not to give it a nod to the the eponymous album, their second yeah, album. Yeah. Just it's it's one of those ones that's just on got to be on any list of yeah. Of I mean, the closer to finds to cure yourself. Yeah. Kid we're fears. just we're just tired of them because we heard it all so Indeed. much. But the truth is, it was it was an amazing you know yeah. amazingly influential piece. So, but but Bob, I think you have an even better candidate for yeah. No, my, so my favorite, the one I actually still occasionally listen to, is Twelve Hundred Curfews, yeah, the, um, the, the double, double live album. And, and kids, just in case you don't know what we're talking double about, double live albums. <laughs> the, the, well, we'll just double. Yeah. Right, double you know, right. There you was get a two time, pieces of vinyl, not one. Right, there was a time when you actually needed like two different, you know, pieces of physical whatever to hold all the music <laughs> from from this kind of album. Right. So, yeah. so Bobby, Twelve Hundred Curfews, fantastic. You know, for a lot of folks who had not had the chance to see them in concert, um, it was their first exposure to to what one of I think their greatest strengths, which is how different. Some of the same songs are yep. when played live and acoustically. That's right. You know, one of the things that, that distinguishes them as musicians is they actually sound at least as good live. And sometimes better. And sometimes better than they do in a produced I mean, so studio I, So take setting. a song like Mystery, right? Mystery is a song off of, I think, Swampophilia. Um, and I like the album version of Mystery, but the live version on 1200 Curfews is is stunning. It's There's a lot. That, you know, they're not all hits on the double album, but some of them are really good. Um, some my good covers. My favorite thing on the album is, is the cover of Down by the river mm-hmm. which which has an extended violin jam yep. um and it just has a really great slow yep. build and the uh emily oh, I, get, I forget what, a- emily's got the scratchier voice right no amy's, amy's got the scratchier voice. voice amy my apologies amy's really oh, bobby. May, yeah, well, bobby 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 I, i'm not the one claiming to have devoted my life to the enthusiasm <laughs> of any girls but i do love them guilty and uh and and the voice the matchup with neil young there it's yeah i mean you know there's another cover. great live cover on that tangled up in blue right mm-hmm. Bob oh yeah actually you know what that's that's a really good one too yeah. the, and and the other cool thing about tangled up in blue is that the song you know i mean this is true of the dylan song right it changes the song itself actually changes style a couple times um so if you really like the live stuff bobby i would also recommend to you staring down the brilliant dream which is their more recent live album? I confess, I've not listened to anything new by them in a really. No, but long so, so staring down the brilliant dream is actually not that new. It's just more new than twelve hundred curfews. Right. Well, um, like, like a lot of people in their mid forties, my my musical <laughs> knowledge like kind of cuts off sharp. You know, my mid twenties, and now it's picking up again thanks to my my daughters. I'm I'm actually pretty knowledgeable about current pop music. So, so I will say, I am looking forward to being able to introduce Maddie to the Nigga Girls when the time comes. You know, I will give you this advice as as the father with older daughters. Um, you control the radio now, so go ahead and get that music playing because you're not going to have that. Well, so long. I will say, I mean, then this is probably a good note to end on. Um, you know, when Maddie was in utero, um, Karen and I were completely obsessed with the Hamilton soundtrack. Um, and so we've always assumed that, you know, somewhere deep down in the recesses of her brain, she just like intuitively will know well, at least, Hamilton at least the, the distinctive melodic styles of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Indeed. So, so uh, Maddie will like Moana then, which definitely there's more than a few ways in Moana's soundtrack where you think, oh, I can tell exactly who wrote that music. <laughs> I, I believe it. But, you know, I, listen, if Maddie likes music at all, it'll be a good thing. That'll be a good thing. And on that note, I think we should let our remaining listener go. <laughs> Um, everyone, thanks for listening. By this time next week, you know, Bobby will either be feeling really nervous about the Warriors or he'll be moving on to baseball season. Let's just get the Spurs to the next round. We'll be just fine. <laughs> All right, everybody, stay safe out there. Adios.